Now last week um, we were away as a family, we went down to London and we went to the Science uh, Museum. Um, we went, it's Friday last week on the half term apparently is the busiest uh, day of the year in the Science Museum. Uh, so we, uh, in the midst of the crowds, went there with our uh, two families, so our friends and their three daughters and us and our uh, three boys, Nathaniel, Harry and Joel, and it was packed. We had to queue to get into the interactive section uh, where you could then kind of do science um, hands-on science. Not quite. I'm not very very sciencey. Um, yeah, you kind of you got to do stuff, and I think it was to do with science. Um, <laughs> it didn't all go to plan though, because in this really busy packed section, um, our friend's daughter, who had been feeling a little bit ropey all day, decided to vomit um, right in the middle of some of the displays, and so. <laughs> Our friend Michael's having to kind of try and stop everybody getting into this and saying, no, no, what, 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 what? And kind of then had to um, put barriers up and uh, get it all cleaned up. <laughs> then we had to look after the middle daughter. Um, who, she was amazing. She could be next to you and you could be looking at her and then all of a sudden she disappeared. Um, and so then you had to try and find her in the midst of all this. Um, and just as we were about to go, um, just to leave, this, the announcement came over the tannoy. Uh, would the parents of Harry, who is eight, please come to the information section? Uh, so then I had to kind of go off and find uh, Harry. Uh, typical, the only announcement of the whole day that I heard like that was for, was for my son. Uh, and he was really upset about being lost in the middle of the science museum. And you could see the relief as I walked. It was only about ten seconds away uh, to the counter where he was. And you could see the relief um, on his face. He was lost. Um, but he'd been found again. Um, and that's what this uh, parable is about. Now he was really excited, he gave me a big hug, uh, and you could tell that he was pleased to be there. Actually, the last time we saw these friends was they came up here and went to Chatsworth. Um, and if you've been to Chatsworth, they've got a farm there, and so we were at the farm. And on the farm, the announcement came over the tannoy again. Uh, would the parents of Harry, who is eight, <laughs> so maybe it's something to do with those friends, I don't know. But you probably know that feeling, don't you, of being lost and then being found. Or, or being, you're not sure where uh, you are and you, uh, you get lost. And, and then you find your way. Somebody finds you. Now I remember being at an air show and losing, losing my dad. Uh, the worst bit was that I found him and tried to hold his hand. And he didn't want to take hold of my hand for some reason. But when I looked up and realised it was another man. Um, <laughs> he looked a bit worried about me trying to hold his hand. But anyway, I did find my dad, there was, there was a relief at that. But you know that, don't you? When the, the computer crashes even, and you're thinking, oh no, I've lost the essay. You turn it back on and uh, Word has managed to recover that document. Uh, the relief that you feel at that. And you see in this, this chapter, it's all about things being lost and being found. And you see the shepherd, he loses one of his sheep, so he leaves the 99 and goes off in search of the one. The very next parable, the, the woman loses one of her coins and so she searches for the one. She leaves the nine and goes and searches for the one. You see, in both those parables, someone searches for something which is lost until it is found. You see, and then in both those parables, upon finding what is lost, they call their friends together and rejoice that they had lost something and found it. And they call people together for a party but you see what Jesus says, the point is, and you see it in verses 7. You see what he says? I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. 
You see the same thing in verse 10? In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You see, Jesus tells this parable to say that the heart of God is to find those who are lost and to bring them to forgiveness. To bring them to a realisation that they, they need to repent and then to be brought back into a relationship with the Father in heaven. And when that happens, there's a party. There's rejoicing. You see, those lost from the presence of God, when they are found, they are rejoiced over. Those lost from God are precious and when God finds them and when they're brought back there is rejoicing you see it demonstrates the heart of God and you see Jesus tells the parable you see, did you see why he told the parable because of the Pharisees who are grumbling that Jesus associates with sinners you see Jesus associates with tax collectors and sinners verse 1 not because he is endorsing their sin because he is, but because he is seeking to draw them back into relationship with God Seeking to find them so that they can be welcomed back into the arms of God. See, so even though the Pharisees grumble at what Jesus is doing, they've missed the point completely. You see, Jesus expands them by speaking of the lavish love that God has for those who are lost and the reception which he will give to those who come home in the very next parable. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of the time looking at. You see, the lost sons and a father's love. Now Jesus begins this third parable, which is much longer than the, the rest, you see, but by introducing us to two sons that a father has. The, the younger son says to his father in verse 12, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so the father divided his property between them. Now does that strike you as quite shocking? Because it really is what he is saying there. He wants the father to give up, give him his share of the inheritance which was coming to him. Now as the younger son, he would be entitled to um, a third of the inheritance, the older uh, brother being uh, entitled to twice the amount, so two thirds. But you see, when does an inheritance come to somebody? Well, it's after the father has died, isn't it? So do you see what this son was saying to his father? Father, I don't love you or care for you. I really just want you dead so that I can have your stuff. I wish you were dead, Dad. You know, one of the things I find uh, really precious with my children is uh, when they tell me that they love me. Um, or when they, uh, you can't quite describe how lovely it is to have somebody to say that to you. And occasionally when they're angry, they, they will say to me that they hate me. Um, and I'm sure you've done that to your parents as well at times. And it just feels awful. It hurts. It's painful. I can't imagine what it would be like if one day they came in to me and said, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could get some money from you. You see, that's what this younger son is doing. I want your stuff so I can do what I want, when I want, and how I want. If my children came and said that, I'd be shattered by that. You see, his relationship, this younger son's relationship with his father had been a means to an end of enjoying with wealth. But now he's weary of that relationship. And you see, you're meant to see here that the father in this uh, parable is God. And so the younger son is saying to God, I want you dead. 
And just as startlingly, I think, in this parable, the father gives the son his request. Now you imagine the father might have rounded on his son, yet he gives him the inheritance. And it wasn't just that he then had to go and get money out of the bank, he would have had to sell land and sell possessions so that he could give his son this stuff. It cost the father much. And yet he allows the son to take it, and take it the son does, travelling away from the father to make a life on his own. He eats, drinks, and is merry until the money is gone, and he is reduced to that shameful practice for a Jew, particularly of, of feeding the pigs. You see, his estrangement from, uh, from God, from his father, couldn't uh, get any worse. It is at that point he decides to return to his father to say sorry. Now, he doesn't imagine his father will take him back as a son. He doesn't dare to imagine that. Rather, he thinks that if he could be one of his father's slaves, he would be much better off. Listen to, listen to the rehearsal of his speech in, verses, in verse 18. He says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be your son. Make me like one of your hired men. You see, so with that speech prepared, he returns to his father. And the extraordinary scene that this parable paints gets even more extraordinary. Can you see what happens from verse 20? So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. It's just staggering, isn't it? And here's this son who has been so evil in his relationship to his father, returning. The father sees him. He sees him on the horizon, recognizes who's coming, and so he hitches up his garments and he runs to his son and he throws his arms around him and kisses him. You see, when he reaches the son, the son doesn't see a stern and angry face coming from his father. He sees one filled with compassion, with love and care for him. He feels the embrace of his father and his kisses on his cheeks. And in the midst of that embrace, he begins his speech to his father. The father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, you see, he doesn't even get to finish his speech before the father is in there speaking to the servants. He calls the servants and look what, what the father says. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a finger, a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. He gets the best robe. The signal of belonging. He gets the ring on his finger. He gets sandals on his feet. The fattened calf is slaughtered in his honour. And the party begins. See, the father says that he was lost. But now is found. He was lost. He was estranged is found and of course as we've seen from the past two parables when somebody is found something's found there's a celebration see it is quite staggering what was being portrayed here this son receives all this entirely due to the grace of his father 
He didn't do anything. He didn't clean himself up and prove himself. He didn't have a, a trial period. He didn't even have to show great remorse. All he had to do was come to his father and receive this free grace. See, those who come to God find not a frown but a smile. They find the embrace of God. And that's still the same now for us. There's no one who's gone too far for this kind of love and forgiveness that is an offer. You see, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, there is grace enough even for you. Maybe you think that God would never or could never forgive you. You see, if you think that, you're wrong. Because your relationship with God doesn't matter about what you've done. A relationship with God comes through grace, entirely free. See, if you come into the loving arms of the Father, you will find love and forgiveness that's an offer. You will find grace enough. At this point, let me just say a couple of things about prayer in this. The last week we, you, you learned at Lighthouse, I wasn't here, obviously, I was at the Science Museum. Um, you, you begin by praying, by saying, Our Father. And to say Our Father is quite extraordinary, because we've got no right, really, to call God Our Father. Absolutely none. But because of the grace of God, He allows us to call Him Father. He draws us into that relationship. Because we've been adopted as his sons and daughters entirely by his grace. Not because of what you've done. And so when we come and pray our Father, it's not because we have earned our right to come and pray to God. We pray to God entirely on the basis of grace. So maybe you might feel when you come to pray, I can't pray to God because... I'm just too guilty. I've done things wrong. I'm sinful, so I can't really pray to God. Well, stop thinking that. You've got no right to pray to God, but because of God's grace, you can pray to God whenever and wherever. Now, maybe you think you cannot pray because of your sin. You're wrong. God is entirely gracious to those who come to him. So you may think you need to make yourself a little bit cleaner before you come to pray to God. Well, you're wrong. We relate to God on the basis of grace, not on the basis of our merit or on what we've done or how we've made ourselves clean. You see, your relationship with God is not on the basis of your good works. It's on the basis of his grace to us. The Father loves you. He knows exactly who you are and he forgives you. He loves you. He cares for you. He'll embrace you. And so you can call him Father. And when you pray, our Father is not... When you pray, our Father, it's not just words to start. It says something really significant, that this Father that we read of here is our Father because of his grace towards us. What startling grace we find. The Son... The lost son was found and they were rejoicing. And yet, as we read on, I think we find that there is another lost son. And while all this is happening, the older brother is just as lost as his younger brother. 
even if his lostness looks very different. And he comes home to the sound of a party, and so in verse 25 and 26 we read, The older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And we read on, and so the brother was delighted about the return of his brother, and so he hitched up his robes and ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. You see, that's not what we read, is it? The young, the older brother doesn't respond like his father. Look at his reaction. Verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. You see the love of the father again. Even though his older son is angry about what's happening, the father goes to him and pleads with him. Listen to what, what Tim Keller says on this. The older brother refuses to go into what is perhaps the biggest feast and public event his father has ever put on. He remains outside the door, publicly casting a vote of no confidence in his father's actions. This forces the father to come out to speak to his older son, a demeaning thing to have to do when you are the lord of the manor and host of a great feast. He begins to plead with his eldest son to come in, but he continues to refuse. What's the older son's issue? You see, I think what he cannot stand is the fact that his, this son, this younger son, has been welcomed back with open arms. Where's the retribution for what he has done? Where's the cost to coming back? He thinks he gets welcomed back without anything being said. And yet, somebody's like, even that's not the heart of it. Because look at his reply to his father's pleading. You see, he says, he answered the father, Look, verse 29, All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. You see what he thinks? I've been a good son to you. I deserve some respect around here. I deserve it. I should be getting the good life. Yet this one, he squanders money on prostitutes and is given everything. It's not fair. You see, the older son thinks he relates to God on the basis of merit, of what he's done. And yet that's entirely opposite to grace. No merit says, I have done things so I deserve something from you. He says, I've kept your rules, so I deserve a reward. He doesn't want the father, he just wants his stuff. And he's thought morality is the way to get it. He thinks he is deserving. And so when the son comes home and gets everything, he doesn't deserve any of it. Because he's done nothing deserving like me. And I think we can understand some of the unfairness he maybe feels... To think of group assignments. You know, as you gather together to, to do that assignment, and there's always one person in the group who turns up late to every meeting, 
never does any of the work which they're meant to do on it. So you take over that work. And then when you get 90% for that piece of work and they get that share, you feel angry at them, don't you? It's unfair. You don't think they deserve it. And we bring that kind of thinking into our relationship with God at times. I've done things so I deserve more than other people. As you may think, I have responded to Vision 2013 and given money, so I deserve good to me now. I have done my quiet times this week, so I deserve to be blessed by you, God. Of course, we're not often as blatant as that. And yet that's what our sentiments often say. So when things go wrong, we turn to God and complain. It's not fair that I get treated like this. What have I done to be treated like this? I've sought to follow you all the time. Unfair because you think God owes you. And you see, this elder brother actually shows that he's lost because he doesn't understand the way in which we relate to God, the way in which we relate to the Father on the basis of grace. We can't relate to God on the basis of merit. We cannot turn and expect him to accept us because we've tried hard. And so you see, Jesus tells us this to explain what's going on in the hearts of the Pharisees in verses 1 and 2. Remember what we saw there? The tax collectors and the sinners gathering around to hear him, but the, father, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttering, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The same thing we've seen all the way through the gospel. He, they can't cope with Jesus meeting these kind of people. You see, they, in their mind, these are sinners who deserve judgment from God, and yet instead God's welcoming, welcoming them. They think they're okay, and here Jesus shatters their categories. And so think about your own heart as you relate to God. Now, how would you feel if somebody became a Christian who was really, has been really unkind and nasty to you? How would you feel about them being welcomed into a church and having everything, having a party thrown for them because they've become Christians? Or put your, yourselves in the feet of, uh, say, Ben Kwashi, who's a, a, the Archbishop of Jos in Nigeria. He's been beaten by people. He's, his wife has been beaten by people. And can you imagine if he walked up to his church one week and there was a party going on inside? He walks inside and there, seated at the front in these places of honour, are those people who beat him and beat his wife because they become Christians. And so there's a party going on. If you were in his shoes, how would you feel? Would you feel like the older brother? How can you do this for these people? How could you have a party for people who've done awful things to me? There needs to be some kind of retribution, some period of exclusion before they can be welcomed in. Well, you see, when you start to think about that and think about your reaction, you start to understand whether you've understood grace and the grace which God offers to us. 
Would you rejoice with the Father that those sinners had returned? Or would you be like the older brother here? You see, if we can't comprehend that kind of love for people, then we've not really understood the grace which comes to us from God. What the Father's love is like. And the parable ends there, really, with the Father pleading with the Son. We're not told whether the brother goes in or not. We don't know whether he was turned around to see the basis of grace. Would the Pharisees come in? Well, ultimately, no, they rejected Jesus and would crucify him. You see, the challenge is left open for us. Do we see the grace of God? Do we understand that we can only relate to God on the basis of grace? And that that transforms how we see each other, how we see people in our world. See, will you take this message to everyone else, seeing that they need to receive blessing and can receive it because of the grace of God? Or will you be like the older son, thinking that they don't deserve it and so don't share with them the message of grace from a father who loves them well there's some questions to think that through a little bit more in your groups now